Hi, everyone. Welcome to this eighth Geopolitical Economy Hour, the fortnightly show of, uh, on the political and geopolitical economy of our times. I'm Radhika Desai. And I'm Michael Hudson. And uh, this will be the fourth and final show on de-dollarization. As you know, we initially decided to do a, a couple of shows on de-dollarization, but we, Michael and I, have written lots about it both jointly and individually, and we have lots to say. So it eventually became uh, three programs, and even then it wasn't over. So today we are into the fourth and final program. And as you know, we've divided our discussion into several questions. So uh, Paul, uh, Paul is uh, uh, behind the scenes looking our videographer. So Paul will be showing the slides. So Paul, can we show the question slides, please? So uh, as you know, there are these 10 questions and we, we've, we've dealt with the first nine and today we'll be dealing with the final question, which is what are the dimensions of the crisis of the dollar system today? And of course, the, uh, as, as, the, as the Chinese saying goes, every crisis is an opportunity. So Michael and I also want to talk uh, very much about what are the opportunities contained in this current crisis for a policy paradigm which is much kinder and better for development and for the pro for prosperity of ordinary people around the world than has been possible over the last several decades of uh, dollar dominance. So that's what we are going to talk about, isn't it, Michael? Yes, we're going to talk about really, it's not simply moving out of the dollar, it's moving, it's uh, de-neoliberalization. It's really a whole creation of a whole different economic system uh, that, we're, that is necessary. Yeah, I mean, some people uh, often talk about the contrast between uh, the uh, so-called Washington consensus and the so-called Beijing consensus, and uh, we, uh, much of what we say will have to do with that. So, uh, you know, uh, the way I think about the crisis, if we can have the next slide. Yeah, so I think of the uh, uh, what drives de-dollarization as being at least composed of two very different parts. So one is one set of developments is occurring within the dollar system, the uh, U.S. financial system, which really forms the base upon which then the dollar sort of tries to mount its uh, contradictory, volatile and never entirely successful role as the world's money. So we'll look at how the contradictions are mounting there. And then we will see that as the contradictions are mounting within the dollar system outside there are there are a whole stream of possibilities and alternatives that are being created centered of course around china but also uh, uh, entailing the um, the uh, 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 activities and policies and the new policies of uh, other countries and of course as you know all these developments have been rapidly accelerated by the recent um, uh, uh, well by the by the current conflict in which so many contradictions have been uh, uh, really maturing. So if we look at the uh, to the, le the left-hand side, the mounting contradictions of the dollar, we see that, first of all, as we've talked about uh, many times in uh, throughout the, this past several shows on de-dollarization, um, the dollar system after 1971 essentially rested on Involve, uh, on, on creating uh, or expanding financial activity, dollar-denominated financial activity in such a way that the rest of the world, holders of money, the rest of the world would hold that money in dollars in order to take advantage of the opportunities for financial profit being created by the dollar system. And what's really interesting is that this 
inflow of dollars that has been central to uh, 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 to keeping up the value of the dollar, to counteracting the downward pressure on the dollar that the U.S. deficits and the declining U.S. economy, etc., would create. So this inflow has actually gone down considerably. So if we can show the next slide. You will see in the next slide that uh, 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 inflow, uh, gross cross-border capital flows, bulk of which are in dollars, you see them going up uh, sort of in, in a series of peaks up to the really big peak of 2007. And as you can see, that was like the mother of all asset bubbles. And after that, you see that the, 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 the inflow, the cross-border capital flows fall and then they recover. But as you also see, the recovery has remained essentially to at levels that are less than half of the 2007 peak. So that's uh, that's the real point. So these inflows are declining. Michael, did you want to add anything? Yes, the important thing uh, is that uh, what we're talking about here and what actually determines the relative exchange rates of currencies is not trade. Uh, in the newspapers, they talk about using the dollar for oil and for uh, food and for other basic needs. Uh, but the actual change that is responsible for the uh, up and down zigzagging are capital flows, mainly into the stock market and into the bond market. And this is very largely a function of interest rates. And uh, the, uh, uh, in, the exchange rates are really a function of uh, financial markets, not uh, trade particularly, uh, especially a foreign debt service. Uh, why do uh, Global South and uh, countries need uh, dollars to pay their foreign, uh, their dollar denominated uh, debts? And uh, this is what uh, the paper, uh, uh, the, the papers lead out. And once you begin to look at these factors, the capital flows that Radhika just mentioned and uh, that we're charting right now, uh, you realize that if uh, you're having a system that's not based on uh, investment in each other's private capital markets, but on a mixed economy with governments, uh, we're not talking about a market economy anymore. So uh, even though, uh, suppose we're 10 years from now, and we're looking back at the chart that Radica just put up, well, right now it looks up and down, but in 10 years, all this will be just a little squiggle, and then there'll be just a completely different world. Well, exactly. And, and you know, Michael, you, you raise a really interesting point. But before we get to that, let me also add one other thing, which is what Michael says is that, you know, this entire dollar system uh, is organized not around production, not around trade, which is basically what ordinary people need in order to make their living. But it is essentially uh, 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 organized around uh, finance, that is to say, in, debt, in the indebting of ordinary individuals, businesses, productive businesses and governments and it is centered around creating speculative asset markets and this is precisely in not only is this the not only does, does this not feed anybody apart from the making a few people very rich by by transferring income from some people to others but it, it, it also strangulates production and in addition to that by creating such a demand for the dollar where which essentially you know it's a, it's a demand that mainly rich people and and big institutions engage in that they supply by creating such a demand for the dollar, what this system has also done is it has brought the exchange value of most currencies uh, other than the dollar 
down. That is to say, the dollar is overvalued in relation to all these other currencies, which means ordinary people in poor countries not only have to work hard in order to earn dollars, they have to work unreasonably hard because the dollar is unreasonably overvalued. Uh, and of course, as Michael says, this is what they need to do in order to pay the debt, which is also the uh, other net on which this re resides, because governments of the third world and increasingly also businesses of the third world are indebted to the dollar system. So now Michael also mentioned one other thing, which is that, of course, uh, this uh, so-called market system, we are always told that, you know, the, the market is operating freely and this is the, the dollar's value is the value determined by the free market. But actually, there's something really fishy going on. So if we could have the next slide here, please. So if you see here, basically what we are also arguing is that the Federal Reserve has had to step in in a big way and support asset markets. So if we can have the next slide, you see what we mean. So here you see simply a graph of the dollars, uh, uh, the Federal Reserve's uh, a balance sheet. And you can see that from being at about a trillion dollars before 2008, it sort of jumped to twice the amount soon thereafter. And then in the process of quantitative easing, it went up to about four trillion dollars and then in the last two or three years given the pandemic crisis and the need to hold up asset markets you can see it doubled again in size so today the uh, uh, the value of the federal reserve's balance sheet is over nine trillion dollars what is why are we showing you this this is the amount of money which in addition to all the other shenanigans including low interest rates etc that the dollar that the federal reserve is using in order to prop up asset markets why does the federal reserve need to prop up asset markets because foreign money is no longer coming in to, in, to the same extent that it would need to in order to keep asset markets up. And if these asset prices were to fall, which they would without the intervention of the Federal Reserve, then of course the wealth of the richest uh, uh, US and world elites would be wiped out. And the Federal Reserve is indebted to nobody other than these elites. So that's the, the next thing we wanted to show you. One thing about this, uh, the uh, Federal Reserve, by doing uh, the quantitative easing, has painted itself into a corner. And the corner is uh, uh, what you saw a few weeks ago with Silicon Valley Bank and uh, now the other uh, San Francisco banks that are going under. Uh, the, uh, if interest rates were to rise, then uh, the, the banks would become insolvent because the value of uh, stocks or bonds uh, is discounted by the exchange rate. Uh, I know that may sound technical uh, for some people, but uh, when interest rates uh, rise, uh, it's basically uh, a, a repayment period. And so the Federal Reserve has a problem. Uh, and it seems to have just discovered uh, this now, that uh, if you have a zero interest rate, then uh, people are going to buy stocks and bonds. And uh, one of the reasons that the dollar has, re has remained strong is that the American stock market has gone up so fast and compared to other markets, uh, including uh, Japan and uh, Europe, that uh, foreign uh, in, uh, investors, the billionaires all over the world are putting their money and to riding the stock market uh, rise. But if the Federal Reserve now decides uh, wages are beginning to go up and we've got to uh, create unemployment and bring on a depression uh, so that uh, we can lower the wages and uh, make even bigger profits, then uh, you're going to have uh, the banking system here 
and in Europe going insolvent. And that's what you're seeing right now. So uh, the, the, the system has uh, reached an insolvable crisis. It's not a problem. It's a quandary. There's nothing the Federal Reserve uh, can do. And the whole dollarized system is uh, uh, breaking right now in the United States. It, it's paralyzed. It can't raise the interest rates without making all the banks look like Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, insolvent and on the balance sheet where the assets uh, lower uh, their value uh, below the deposit uh, liabilities. Uh, banks, owe, banks owe depositors money. The backing for these deposits are the bank's holding of stock and bond. If interest rates go up, and stock and bond prices and real estate prices go down, then uh, they, uh, the banks no longer can cover their reserves. The $9 trillion that Reddick has just mentioned is uh, all is the insolvency of the bank. The government would have to, uh, uh, um, within one month, the government would have to create another $9 trillion to give to the banks to cover the deposits. And that's crazy. Well, absolutely. In fact, you know, it's it's both. It's the, the, the this uh, this uh, vast inflation of the U.S. Uh, Federal Reserve's balance sheet, as Michael says, represents the insolvency of banks. But I would add one other thing. It represents the illiquidity of asset markets. That is to say, you know, an asset market is only liquid if whenever you want to sell your holding of that asset, there is a buyer for it. And that is no longer so, which is why the Federal Reserve has stepped in to add Act as the uh, buyer of last resort for these asset markets. And, you know, uh, the quandary that Michael talks about, this is absolutely key. And we have talked about this actually for several years, including in our 2020 paper and even going back before it, which is that uh, with 2020 paper, which was called Beyond the Dollar Creditocracy. And this has also been my argument actually going back uh, even uh, uh, longer years. Essentially, throughout the 20th, uh, 21st century, and certainly since 2008, the Federal Reserve, in order to prop up a declining uh, financial system, an increasingly volatile and vulnerable financial system, has been pursuing a zero or very low interest rate policy. And what this has done is it has not only supported the banking structure, which was already vulnerable, and by supporting it in this way, the Federal Reserve papered over the vulnerabilities of this banking system. And of course, it also uh, uh, inflated the value of financial assets. And now the resurgence of inflation, which the Federal Reserve cannot combat or will not combat, I should say, through any other means, but by raising interest rates, the Federal Reserve is caught between a rock and a hard place. If they raise interest rates, the whole financial house of cards come comes crashing down. And if they don't raise interest rates, inflation will bring down the dollar and also have an effect and act as a drag on the economy, on the financial system, etc., etc. So in this way, essentially, the return of inflation is a crisis of the dollar system itself. And I would also add that it is a crisis of the imperial system in the simple sense that if one of the key foundations of imperialism is to keep the um keep the resources that that come to rich countries particularly the united states 
cheap. And as the dollar goes down in value, as inflation goes up, these things are no longer cheap and they can no longer act as, uh, in, in, no, no longer essentially uh, keep the cost of living down and the cost of production down in these countries. So, so these are some of the things. If we can go to the next slide, please. The next contradiction is that, in fact, uh, the inflation, of course, is eroding the dollar. Uh, and we've also talked about how the Federal Reserve cannot reverse it without collapsing asset markets. So we've, we've done that. But the next problem is that U.S. assets, including U.S. treasuries, are becoming less attractive. So if we go to the next slide, what's very clear is that the share of the uh, U.S. share of global reserve currencies has declined quite substantially. So you see here in the seven right up to the end of the 1970s, it is very high at about 85% of uh, the dollar share of global reserve. Then it falls as a result of the crisis of the late 1970s, which Paul Volcker had to react to by massively raising interest rates. And this saved the situation, but the share of the dollars, uh, the dollar share of global reserves kept falling. And then in the 90s, it went up. And that's also a really interesting story. It went up because of a series of financial crises that afflicted other countries, largely thanks to their participation in this volatile dollar system. And in reaction to this, in order to keep capital uh, accounts open. Remember also that in the 1990s, the Clinton administration had gone on a big drive to get all the countries of the world, but particularly what they call the big emerging markets of Eastern Asia. It had been on a drive to get them to lift capital controls, telling them that they would get you know, necessary uh, 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 investment money coming in, investment funds coming in. But in reality, all that came in was what's called hot money, short-term money that invests in asset markets and leaves at the drop of a hat. And indeed, this is the kind of money that had caused the great East Asian financial crisis and a whole slew of other crises in different markets before then. Around well, this time, sorry, just one small point, Michael. And around this time, just to finish this, um, what then happened is that these countries, unfortunately, rather than impose capital control, they elected to keep their capital accounts open, but also accumulated reserves in order to have the ammunition with which they could um, they could intervene in markets if there was any downward pressure on their currency. So, for example, the Korean Central Bank would keep vast reserves so that if there was a downward pressure on the Korean won, it would buy, use the dollars to buy Korean won and hold up the value of the won. Of course, this meant that they had to increase their dollar reserves. So the share of the dollar reserves went up. Sorry, Michael. Uh, please go ahead. Well, you're right. People had to hold dollars in order to uh, interfere with exchange, to regulate exchange markets. Uh, and uh, this is what uh, England did for many years. Uh, if the, uh, if the, you import more because uh, you're in a boom, uh, you ha uh, the uh, currency would go down if you didn't have reserves to sell against the dollar. So the dollar was the main measure. Uh, the chart that uh, Radica just showed uh, actually understates the problem because there's a little trick there. Uh, the trick was dollar is a percentage of, re of currency reserves, but currency, uh, but uh, foreign reserves are not only in currency; they're in gold. And if this chart would have showed uh, uh, central bank reserves, 
uh, it would have showed that gold, is, especially in the last uh, two years, has shown a rising percentage of uh, currency values, uh, and uh, that that really is what uh, countries are, are moving into. Uh, they don't sell gold back and forth to stabilize uh, their foreign exchange markets as they used to do in the 1920s, uh, but they're they're looking for a kind of an economic system where they don't want to have to stabilize exchange markets by uh, having the financial system determine exchange rates, but they want to establish uh, a stable trade relations among themselves without uh, the financial sector interfering and causing the whole long-term distortion that we're describing. And, and and that's a really good point, Michael. And my, uh, Paul, if we can have that uh, the the slide back that we were just looking at, I just want to make one other point about that slide. Yeah. So so then we we talked about how in the nineteen nineties these reserves went up, and and uh, uh, and then what we see is that basically in the new century there has been essentially a decline in the uh, in the value. Uh, sorry, in in the share of dollars as the as a reserve currency, and Michael already pointed out one little uh, thing that is ignored by this uh, chart. But also charts like this, you know, some people are pointing out that charts like this also ignore one other thing. This uh, chart generally takes the uh, the uh, the reserves at their nominal value, but if you factor in the fact that the dollar has also been losing its value over the same period, then in fact you see much more drastic falls in the, uh, so not just say from a high of 85 or so to now a high of about 60 or just below 60%, but you would see them coming down to below 50% and even less if you accounted for the actual market value of the dollar. So in this way, uh, 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 the, the one one in indicator is that the share of um, uh, uh, dollars in global reserves is going down. And if we can show the next slide, please. So now you also see stories like this uh, in the various financial uh, newspapers. So this is from the Financial Times. Just one example. The market in U.S. Treasuries is storing up trouble is, is what Gillian Ted says. And if we look at the uh, next slide again, please. Uh, in that story, again, she makes a series of points which are really worth noting. So first of all, this is just from a couple of months ago, and she says that Janet Yellen, the U.S. Treasury Secretary, had to take the rare step of admitting in public that she's worried about a loss of adequate liquidity in the market. And once again, let's remember, loss of liquidity is simply a polite way of saying that people don't want to buy U.S. treasuries. So that's the first thing. And then the couple of other points Jillian Tet makes here, you know, uh, first of all, that the U.S. treasury market is also plagued by a particular challenge. One is size. The U.S. government's outstanding issuance has almost doubled since 2015 and quadrupled since 2007, something we know very well. And as you know, of course, the quality of that debt has already been downgraded a, a couple of times in the recent past. So essentially the idea that the US, is, the US treasuries are the ultimate safe asset is taking a drubbing. And then finally, you know, a third problem is that the very rules that after 2008 were brought into play in order to make the bank, US banking system more resilient are also essentially ensuring that the US financial institutions are not 
stepping up to buy U.S. treasuries because every time they step up to buy U.S. treasuries, this is taken as a form of lending, which it is. And the banks have to show adequate reserves against that lending, which means that they are not, by the rules, able to buy the uh, the uh, uh, buy more U.S. treasuries, which really shows you that the U.S. financial system is increasingly like the serpent that's eating its own tail. Its own contradictions are multiplying. So, uh, Michael, I'm sh I think you probably want to add something more. No, no. It's, uh, this is technical, and I want to get beyond the technical. Okay, fine. So then uh, can we show the next slide, please? Yeah, so this is, uh, I think this is a, a final point here, which is that the, uh, uh, you know, uh, in order to talk about the strength of the US dollar as the world's money, one of the things that people uh, constantly refer to is, oh, you know, Japan and China are the biggest holders of US dollars. There's a little problem there. They're not the biggest holders of US dollars. They are the biggest foreign holders of US dollars and the share of foreign holders uh, in total US uh, among total uh, holders of US dollars is actually about you know it had historically been about 30% or so but today with the recent rise in uh, the US uh, 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 US debt which you see at the top of the uh, the top line there you see that there has been a big rise in the uh, in the US indebtedness but foreign holders have not correspondingly increased their holdings which means that as the US continues to get more indebted, what you are looking at is that the foreign holders share and including the Chinese and Japanese share of, uh, uh, of dollars is actually going down as a proportion of the total. So, uh, Michael, did you want to add anything? There's an important reason for, for all of this. Uh, the, the, uh, a lot of uh, uh, high income uh, money in the United States has moved out of the stock market, out of the bond market into uh, treasuries because they know that the government can always print the money. There's no question that uh, the U.S. treasuries are the safest of all investments for Americans uh, and uh, uh, for uh, friendly Europeans. The problem is uh, this: uh, while the United States can always print dollars, and you're safe if you're an American, uh, safer than holding uh, stocks that are going up and down. Uh, the if you're a foreigner, the uh, the Federal Reserve ca uh, cannot print foreign currencies. If you're a foreigner and you're saying, "Look at the volume of uh, U.S. debt," there's no way that the American economy ever in uh, in a hundred years can repay the existing debt the uh treasury debt that america owns to um, americans is good good debt because they can print it the uh the uh debt uh, by the treasury uh, that americans own to foreigners is bad debt it cannot be paid and foreigners have done the financial analysis uh and realized well wait a minute there's no uh, the united states can't export more because it's deindustrialized. Uh, it can't really uh, create more of a stock and bond market uh, growth because it's already at zero uh, interest with $9 trillion propping it up. Uh, there's no way we can ever be repaid. Let's, uh, let's get out of the dollars into something that we know can be repaid. That's why they're moving into gold. That's why they're moving into each other's currencies. And that's why they're trying to think there must be a different system and which is what we're going to be talking about for the balance of this show. 
Yes, indeed. Uh, I would say that there's only one final point that I'm sure we want to want to cover before we go on to that talking about the different system. And that is that, of course, the final problem with the US dollar within the dollar system is the weaponization of the dollar system, which is essentially a whole slew of things. Uh, most recently, of course, we've seen how uh, the US financial system was used as an instrument through which to essentially uh, uh, sequester, uh, uh, essentially steal uh, Russia's reserves. And before that, as you know, Afghanistan's and Venezuela's reserves have been stolen. Um, there is also another uh, problem, which is that already some years ago, people were complaining about the dollar uh, uh, the weaponization of the dollar system vis-a-vis -vis Argentina where the old rules of bankruptcy and 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 and, and uh, you know essentially dealing with degraded uh, debt uh, which was that you know some uh, 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 vulture funds buy buy these up and then they get they buy them up for pennies and they try to get a few more pennies uh, on top of that in by by reclaiming the debt but the fact is that the new a new york court ruled that the vulture funds were entitled to the entirety of a debt that they had bought for pennies. And even the Financial Times had to complain that this is not how the rules of the debt markets work. The, 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 the uh, Argentina's debt cannot be paid. Uh, Zambia's debt cannot be paid. Uh, Sri Lanka's debt cannot be paid. And the American debt cannot be paid. So uh, the, the, what's broken is not simply the dollar is a political currency that it can grab uh, your money. The, uh, the whole financial system in the West has reached its limit. It, uh, the debts can't be paid. And the question exactly. is, how aren't they going yeah. to be paid? Yeah. Uh, so, and, and, so that's the reality. Yellen said that China should pay them. Uh, the American <laughs> position is let China, if only China will give up all its debts, then these uh, countries can uh, afford uh, to pay the bondholders. And then you have bank lobbyists such as Bono saying, uh, well, if only the governments will give up their debt, uh, then uh, the money can be, uh, that uh, the little money that the global uh, South makes can uh, be used to pay the dollar holders. Let governments subsidize uh, the dollars by giving up their debt. Let China uh, give up its debt. And this is what politicizes the whole issue of uh, uh, international finance and trade and currency. And so, yes. And then and so 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 now you can you have a kind of as full a picture as we can draw of the mounting contradictions of the dollar system. So so the dollar system is collapsing under the weight of its own contradictions. On the other hand, alternatives are emerging. And we've talked uh, off and on about the various alternatives, bilateral arrangements between different countries to trade in their own currencies, multilateral arrangements like the Chiang Mai Initiative, the Shanghai Cooperation Agreement, the New Development Bank. The, contingency reserve agreement, the uh, creation of new payment systems like the MIR systems and the SIP systems of Russia and China, respectively, the increasing interest in central bank digital currencies, which will give uh, which will allow countries to ease uh, 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 financial transactions, or sorry, uh, monetary transactions, particularly those that are uh, intimately involved with what the rest of the world is primarily involved with, which is the expansion of their productive system and their trading relations. And, and of course, their mutual productive investment relations. These countries are not interested 
interested in expanding unnecessarily uh, 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 the financial system as in debts and asset markets or unproductive debt and asset markets. So, uh, uh, and central bank digital currencies will enable this to happen more easily. So as these uh, things multiply what is, is increasingly going to happen is that the dollar and its value will be will matter to a ever narrowing circle of primarily us based dollar holders so that's where we are at and in this context what we then have is the possibility that the rest of the world will fashion a completely new financial system because you know one of the things that everybody asks is okay so if the dollar is no longer going to be the world's currency what will be the world's currency and our answer has always been it's not going to be another national currency modeled either on the pound sterling or on the dollar one of the things we've pointed out is that this both of these systems were based on uh, uh, foundations that are no longer possible uh, and in fact the dollar system was always uh, uh, as a result too uh, uh, um, unstable and volatile so what we are going to see is the, the replacement of this broken system with a brand new system based on quite new principles that, that that's the whole point where it, it's not a de-dollarization as such it's a de-neoliberalization uh and uh obviously the countries are going to still run imbalances with their trade uh and uh, uh some investment uh uh tangible capital investment not stock market investment but uh, how are they going to uh, settle the, the the fact that all economies work on credit. You need some basis for the credit system, but you don't want it to be a foreign currency. So uh, the solution is obviously going to be you create an artificial currency. Sort of, uh, you we've said before, it's like paper gold, except it's not gold. Uh, it's something that uh, will be. Politically uh, defined by the member countries as something like Keynes's bank or uh, a, a kind of uh, credit that can only be used among central banks, among governments for their own purpose. And uh, this is what the United States is really afraid of. Uh, right now, if you were to look at the charts that uh, we've just been showing, the United States can say, well, so what? What's the alternative? The problem is for other countries to create an alternative and to create an alternative, you need to have an ideology. You need to have a idea of what is an economic system? How does the world economy uh, work in a way that is going to benefit us uh, and be mutually beneficial without uh, uh, being you uh, centered on any particular economy, benefiting at the rest of the others by just printing its currency as a, as a free lunch? That's the task that other countries are facing, and yet they're not facing it. They're not really uh, describing uh, the, the kind of economic system that would be an alternative to the US-based bank-financed uh, neoliberal system. And uh, that's, that's what uh, I, I think in all of the shows that we're doing here, we're trying to uh, provide uh, an outline for what this kind of a future uh, can look, out, look like if it's not the kind of a financialized uh, system uh, that we have in the past. In fact, if it's how do we move towards a socialist system.
Well, exactly. I mean, you know, so so a couple of different points. So as 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 um, uh, Michael pointed out, uh, um, the way to think about what will replace the dollar system, uh, one of the best ways to think about it is to think about the principles underlying Keynes's proposals for Banco and the International Currency Union, which is why we we discussed it at, at some length in our in a previous episode, because these principles, uh, they will not, you know, we will not realize an ICU or a bank or immediately, chiefly because the United States, it requires the U.S. as the head, uh, you know, the U.S. as one of the larger economies to play ball. And as long, you know, for the foreseeable future, we don't see the U.S. as agreeing to anything like that. In fact, the United States, in its quest for making the dollar the world's money, nixed uh, Keynes's original proposals in the first place back in 1944. And it's not about to uh, subordinate itself to this system. And one of the key reasons why the US will not subordinate itself to this system is very important and interesting from the point of view of what Michael was just saying. It involves a completely different conception of the economy. The US government essentially acts as the representative of big private corporations. It is their power that it seeks to advance. Whereas if you accepted the principles of Banco and the International Currency Union, the idea is not to uh, not to add to the power of big private corporations, including big financial corporations, but on the contrary, to uh, 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 to to underline the fact that economies are supposed to be run uh, to focus on production, productivity, and the creation of a broad-based prosperity, full employment, etc., which is exactly the opposite of what the U.S. wants to do. So, the United States' pursuit of the interests of big corporations is not served by agreeing to such a system. So, we will not. See that, but we will see regional equivalence of that, partial equivalence of that, and the principles involving the bank or system are very important. The, one of the first ones is uh, the whole issue of balances versus balanced uh, 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 economic growth and investment and trade versus imbalance. The dollar system, because it's based on essentially the US running current account deficits rests systematically on the generation of imbalances. It is the vaster, the bigger the imbalances, the more the liquidity that is provided to the, to the world system, which then means that there is a fundamental volatility in the system. Keynes, on the other hand, had designed the ICU and Bancor, and we'll see that the regional arrangements will also have to eventually see the wisdom of this. Keynes had designed this in order to reduce imbalances. Yes, the Bancor is created in order to uh, uh, settle imbalances, but the the way the ICU was designed was to ensure that imbalances did not persist. So that, of course, and the more balance you have in world trade, in world investment relations, etc., what did that what that does is it actually reduces the need for the use of any currency because if there is no imbalance to settle, there is no need for the money. And it also creates an incentive. For example, imagine if, if, the, if, for example, the relations between Germany and the rest of the EU were run on banker-like principles, Germany would have to invest in the productive development of Greece in order to bring Greece up to the level at which it was would be able to buy as much of German products as it sold to Germany and vice versa. So the trade between these countries would grow it would increase the well-being of Germans and Greeks, but it would do so in a balanced fashion so as to not store up problems for later. 
Well, Germany has been investing in Greece, but not in a way that uh, has increased balance. Germany has been buying out, uh, uh, when Greece was in financial trouble, Germany bought out the electric utilities and some others and has been charging monopoly rents. Uh, the German objective is to impoverish Greece to the maximum degree uh, possible in order to create profits for uh, the German firms. Uh, I think what Keynes realized, Keynes, uh, when Keynes talked about reducing imbalances, he didn't mean reducing instability. Any economic system, even under a reform system that uh, uh, the world's bringing about, is going to polarize. Any ec economy, the natural tendency is to polarize, especially because of debt. Uh, we've talked before about how debt grows faster than the economy. That polarizes. Uh, Keynes ac accepted the fact that there was going to be continuing an imbalance that was in fact going to grow. What he wanted to do was not deny this imbalance, not create a system of balance because that's really not possible. But when it's imbalanced, you'd actually cancel the accumulation of debt by the creditor countries uh, and you'd wipe out the debt of the debtor countries so that they weren't reduced to having to live like Argentina had to live. They're not impose, uh, uh, imposing austerity on, on themselves. Uh, the, result of the, the result of the imbalance will be wiped out. The imbalance itself won't be cured, but the results of the imbalance will be wiped out so that the world can uh, have some restoration of order, some restoration of normalcy and solvency. Uh, you have to maintain some way of keeping economies solvent and under finance capitalism, under any financialized system, the tendency is for the financial sector to take over the real economy. And uh, the only solution, Keynes said, is to wipe out the debts uh, that are built up by the financial creditors. You wipe out uh, the debts and at the same time the creditors' claims on others, and that's what the bank or systems did, and that's why the United States rejected this claim in 1945, because they said, well, wait a minute, uh, over the next five years, by 1950, we're going to uh, increase our, uh, our uh, holdings of gold, as indeed they did. We're going to increase uh, other countries' debt of England and Europe, as indeed it did. We don't want to wipe it out. We want to use this to consolidate our power. That's uh, uh, that's what our power is. And uh, so Keynes' uh, system is designed to prevent any country uh, from achieving the kind of power that uh, the United States uh, achieved as a creditor nation. And the fact is, if you had a bank or this would mean that uh, if China becomes a major investor in the major economy, yes, it can continue to uh, develop, uh, uh, to uh, build up credits, but uh, other country at a certain point, uh, the uh, accumulation of Chinese uh, financial claims on other countries namely other countries' debt to China, will simply be uh, wiped out after, and uh, Keynes had a mechanism uh, to wipe this out after a given number of years. So governments have to avoid trying to profit at other governments' uh, expense. That's the, the problem that really has to be solved by uh, governments getting together and creating the kind of alternative to neoliberal financialization that we're talking about. Yeah, I, I just put it, brought you the point you were making about balance and imbalance, Michael, in a slightly different way. I would say that Keynes, of course, knew that uh, uh, imbalances could not be entirely wiped out. But what he did was he ensured 
that imbalances would not persist. There would not be persisting imbalances. You would not have the situation that we've had for the last so many decades of US uh, current account deficits continuing to grow uh, uh, exponentially, essentially, and uh, of course, uh, cap uh, 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 capital flows also uh, continuing to grow. So that's, and, and by the way, he would have he, uh, 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 proposed to correct that essentially by focusing on the productive economy. It was not merely a financial correction. He basically created incentives for countries that were accumulating surpluses. You remember also that one of the key principles of Keynes's system was that adjustment should not be imposed only on the debtor and deficit countries, but also on the surplus and creditor countries. So that there is always both parties because, you know, one country's trade surplus is another country's trade deficit or vice versa. So all the countries involved should look for win-win solutions. And by the way, this is it's not surprising that the Chinese government in particular keeps uh, using this expression because it is indeed the opposite of what the US system offers. US system is a zero-sum game. Somebody wins and somebody loses, whereas it is possible to devise rules of the game that are win-win. So, uh, so no, no persistent imbalances. And yes, the, the devising of a bank or a multilaterally created currency to be used only by central bankers and therefore not to be used, not uh, like, as I always like to say, by the likes of you and me to buy a bar of chocolate, but also not to be used by, by wealthy individuals to accumulate wealth, to indebt others, and so on and so forth. So that's one principle. So it is designed in such a way as to essentially prevent precisely the type of financialization that hangs like an albatross around the neck of the world economy today. There are a couple of other principles as well. From the start in these de-dollarization programs, we've emphasized that the idea that any uh, national currency can easily be the world's currency is very problematic. We've explored the problems with the sterling system, with the dollar system, etc. So it therefore follows logically from this that going forward, we should not expect that this should be replaced by the yuan or any other currency. In fact, you will be seeing these other arrangements. And key, another very important principle of this for Keynes, I think it was practically sacrosanct, was the institution of capital controls or what we call capital account management. Because without capital controls, the type of productive economy that Michael is referring to and that we both believe should really be what all countries strive for is not possible. If you allow the rich people of your country to take money in and out of your country whenever you like, you are tying yourself to a form of economic management, which is the opposite of economic management for productive expansion, for egalitarian economies, and so on and so forth. So in that sense, I would say that, uh, and, and I'll, I'll make one final point, and then we'll probably draw this program to a close. I'm sure Michael will have lots to add, but let me make, let me start winding down by saying, that um, the time, you know, of course, in the near future, we will witness internationalization of the yuan for for sure, and maybe some other currencies as well. 
But if you are going to keep to the sorts of principles that underlay Keynes's ingenious uh, 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 proposals, uh, then you will not see the, uh, the yuan into being internationalized in the, on the model of the dollar. You know, when people, you know, I always get so uh, uh, intrigued when uh, that people don't get things. You know, the, you see every other day you will read a story saying, oh, the yuan will never replace the dollar because it will never be internationalized like the dollar. Well, you're darn right it won't be internationalized like, like the dollar and it should not be because if it were internationalized like the dollar, the Chinese productive economy would suffer the fate of the American productive economy, which is essentially going down the drain. So anyway, so, so the internationalization of the yuan will proceed, but on very different principles. Uh, so, so, so this will, you know, it will not, the yuan will not become the foundation, for example, of new types of financial bubbles or new types of unsustainable indebtedness that Michael is always talking about when he says that debts that can't be paid, won't be paid, etc. So, Michael, please go ahead. Well, changing a financial system requires changing the whole economic system. And if the purposes we've been discussing is how are you going to make the countries that today are indebted, uh, the Global South countries, uh, how are you going to enable them to get to the future? Uh, well, there's only one way uh, that you can have them revive, and that is uh, to, uh, to create a mixed economy. Government is going to have to pay, play the major role in reviving these economies through government infrastructure. The key is that basic natural monopolies, transportation, communications, healthcare, uh, cannot be financialized. They're going to be done uh, by the government. That is uh, the reason, uh, that is how China has been able to make the amazing uh, gains that it's made over the last uh, 30 and, and 40 years. So what we're talking about is how do you make the whole world have the kind of success that China has had for 40 years and, and not have the kind of dependency and uh, uh, austerity uh, that the U.S. dollar system has had. Well, uh, you're going to have to have government taking a, a, a lead. This is why the United States is fighting so viciously against uh, uh, to prevent this from happening. It's not simply preventing an alternative to the dollar as a currency. It's preventing the dollar, uh, the uh, financial system, uh, from being outmoded and replaced by uh, a, a mixed public-private economy. Uh, I want to quote one thing that Janet Yellen, the uh, uh, the uh, militarized uh, treasure, uh, uh, Treasury Secretary said. Uh, she's sort of in the uh, line of uh, Madeleine Albright and uh, Hillary Clinton uh, and uh, uh, Miss Rice, uh, the most vicious American uh, 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 supremacists all seem to be women these days. Here's what Miss Yellen complained about last week. I'm going to quote, China has long used government support to help its firms gain market share at the expense of foreign competitors. In other words, it succeeded in developing. That's called at their expense. Uh, but in recent years, its industrial policy has become more ambitious 
and complex. China has expanded support for its state-owned enterprises and domestic private firms to dominate foreign competitors. In other words, uh, a mixed economy and government support works. That's why the United States has been subsidizing its uh, computer chip uh, thing so much. She said, it has done so in a traditional industrial sectors as well as emerging technologies. This strategy has been coupled with aggressive efforts to acquire new technological know-how and intellectual property. That must be blocked. Well, imagine uh, the American plan is to uh, uh, gain control of uh, the uh, number of sectors that Ms. Yellen uh, uh, indicated, the information technology, computer chip making. The United States insists that only the United States can control computer chips so that it can sell uh, computer chips, not simply for the cost of production, but for a huge monopoly rent that economists call international property rent. Uh, in the last few days, you've had uh, the Korean president meet with uh, uh, President Biden, who said, we want to make sure that you are not going to sell uh, computer chips uh, to China. We are trying to prevent China from having technology. That's how the dollar system works. The dollar system is based on uh, concentrating all natural monopolies in the United States, the monopoly of ownership of oil and gas uh, reserves, the monopoly of computer technology, uh, uh, the information technology, pharmaceutical uh, and uh, health technology. The dollar system is really a, a concentration of monopoly rents uh, in uh, in uh, the United States dollars, which is supposed to create uh, a huge uh, increase in the stock market value of Amazon and uh, Google, and they've been leading the last week's uh, stock market boom. The, uh, the Americans say we can create uh, all other countries to be not only financially dependent on the dollar, but trade dependency. And that's the key. You can't understand the financial system of dependency without understanding the trade dependency that America has tried to create for oil and gas, for food exports, blocking Russia, for uh, technology uh, uh, exports. This is the whole system that uh, has to be taken on. And the amazing thing is that unlike 50 years ago, uh, you, you had other countries describing the benefits of their system. China has not come out uh, with any attempt to proselytize uh, its uh, economic uh, plans, its economic uh, philosophy that's enabled it to develop as an alternative to U.S. philosophy. It's simply done it. So it's really uh, the job of other countries. Uh, other countries are now going to have to be very explicit. Yes, we need uh, uh, government investment. What should the government invest in? Natural monopolies and uh, uh, research and development, uh, just as the United States has done. Uh, and in fact, China has simply been following the policies that have made uh, uh, America rich. And uh, the idea of a new financial system is that all countries will have this government support in stabilizing. So we're really talking about not only a financial alternative to the dollar, but a mixed economy as contrasted to a finance bank-driven uh, bank economy.
You know, uh, Michael, this is so you so well described the 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 new uh, uh, finance, new economic system that's possible now as the, uh, the the dollar system goes into its twilight phase, and you see the emergence of a of international monetary and financial structures which are more conducive to a new type of economic paradigm. And I was reminded, I I often think of the type of economy that you see today in the United States or in the UK, for example, which are all chasing after existing assets in a way that is actually undermining the real economy, which is the production of new goods and services, which is absolutely vital to the maintenance of life. So I think of the US system today as a necrophilic system based on the love of the dead, the already dead labor that is already produced assets. Whereas I think what we want to see is a economic system which is vitaphilic, that is to say, based on a love of life that is about creating full employment, ensuring that all the productive capacities of the society get uh, uh, get their expression. This would be based, uh, historically, we know that free market systems have tended not to produce these kinds of economies, but state interventionist systems have. They In the post-Second World War period, in practically all countries, in uh, socialist countries throughout until today, we have had systems involving planning, in uh, focusing on full employment, uh, involving substantial state ownership, creating welfare states, and based fundamentally on financial repression, which is ultimately about stopping this, this necrophilia and, and creating a, a type of bank industry relations, which we also talked about earlier, that Hilferding described as being based on finance capital. That is to say, a financial system able to drive forward productive expansion rather than strangulating it, the type of financial system which basically China more or less has today, and uh, which it should preserve rather than undermine in, uh, uh, and we are pretty sure it will, uh, in uh, even while it may allow, allow, for example, a certain amount of um, uh, internationalization of the renminbi, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, I think we can uh, uh, bring this uh, uh, show to a close by just perhaps reminding you uh, that, uh, and, and uh, Paul, if you may just show some of the works uh, in which we've talked about this over the last uh, four de-dollarization shows, we've talked a, a lot about the international monetary systems, the history, it's present. And Michael and I have written a number of things. There's my geopolitical economy. Then there is uh, uh, Michael's super imperialism. And there is also uh, Michael's the destiny of civilization, finance, capitalism, industrial capitalism, or socialism. Very important uh, 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 in, in talking about the what Michael was just talking about just now, the different types of financial systems, sorry, economic systems that we need to see developing now. And then finally, my most recent book, Capitalism, Coronavirus and War. All And, and, and sorry, there's one more thing. Uh, Michael and I wrote a common article beyond the dollar creditocracy, which also talks about all of this. So uh, hopefully uh, uh, this has been very interesting uh, to you all. Uh, next week, we hope to uh, talk about the political economy of uh, the, uh, the conflict over Ukraine, looking at uh, the political and geopolitical economy of both what's happening in Ukraine, in Russia, in Europe, in the rest of the world, in the United States, etc. So we hope you'll join us. And for now, uh, we'll just say goodbye.